Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Today on the School of Unlearning, we are sitting down with Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Here's a little bit about her background before we get into what to expect with this really juicy and heartfelt episode. Dr. Joan Rosenberg is the creator of Emotional Mastery and Emotional Mastery Training and is a highly regarded expert psychologist, master clinician, trainer, and consultant. As a cutting-edge psychologist who is known as an innovative thinker, trainer, and speaker, Joan has shared her life-changing ideas and models for emotional mastery, change, and personal growth in professional and educational seminars, psychotherapy sessions, and also graduate psychology teaching. In this episode, we cover a lot of what she talks about in her book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, um, how to surf the waves of difficult and unpleasant emotions to achieve more authenticity, more confidence, um, and more emotional mastery, which is something I think anybody here um, listening is is realizing that is an important facet, if not non-negotiable facet towards um, enjoying life more and being more part of life versus um, separate from it. So in this podcast episode, we cover a number of different things. Um, starts off with Joan sharing a little bit about her childhood, some really early influential moments with friends and family that helped shape her worldview around belonging. Um, we also discuss why, why and how emotional confidence was something that she began to realize was a key to helping her unlock connection and um, authenticity in her life. Um, We also discuss what the 90 second rule is, how we can make use of feelings and emotions as they come up and use them as sources of data, um, and how we can really understand what pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings are here to teach us. And for those of you who have a hard time taking a compliment or accepting praise or even celebrating yourself, this podcast dives really deeply into that and helps us understand why we might have resistance and why it's so crucial for us to begin to accept compliments and praise and even celebrate things in ourselves. Um, we also talk a lot about grief towards the end of the podcast, and Dr. Joan Rosenberg recommends three uh, really personal and incredible practices for how we can process grief. And in one of my favorite moments in the podcast, we talk a lot about congruence and what that means to have your inner world match your outer world and why that would be important. This episode is really beautiful. It's really heartfelt. And um, there's an incredible level of nuance and expertise that uh, Joan brings to the podcast. And um, I will include all information in the show notes about who we reference and how you can learn more about her work and her book as well. Enjoy, my friends, and share with anybody and everybody who you think would benefit. Hi, Dr. Rosenberg. How are you today? I'm really wonderful. It's so great to see you again. So good to see you. Um, So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, The School of Unlearning. Um, I feel like I've been friends with my emotions for 39 years, and it's only the last couple of years that I've started to unlearn what they mean and how to make friends with them and how to work with them versus against them. So your uh, presence on this podcast is really welcome from me and also my guests. I mean, everyone here who follows this podcast and, you know, works with me knows that um, most things come down to emotional regulation and confidence. So um, I, I I can't say it's my favorite podcast yet because it's not done, but I think it might be one of my favorite. <laughs> oh, okay. 
<laughs> Welcome and uh, so good to have you. Um, one of the things I like to do to kick off all of my podcasts is to help um, you know our guests and, and help you give a chance to just speak a little bit about life for you growing up. Um, where did you grow up and who were some early influences in your life that uh, still impact you today? Oh, interesting question. Uh, well, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Missouri, St. Louis. And uh, so, and it was a, a suburban growing up at the height of the baby boom. Mm. So, um, and it was uh, filled with lots and lots of time outside mm. as, um, because the, the space was available and, uh, and I loved nature. So, uh, but in, ter in terms of uh, growing up years, I would say I was challenged mm. and challenged early. Uh, I I started school a little bit early. felt felt probably a little bit of separation because I was I think school is in session for a little bit before I I jumped into the mix, mm -hmm. and that was a starting point of kind of feeling like I didn't quite fit in. Mm -hmm. But that was that be, that was sort of a major thread and major mm -hmm. experience for some stretch of time. So this quality of not fitting in, of not belonging, and yeah. um. Yeah. And it's like kind of, who am I? And so I, I was, uh, and I was really shy. So it was, it wasn't that I could find that I found it easy to initiate and and go kind of be super social on my own and connect with others. It was, I was kind of probably always in a little bit of the hanging back mode mm -hmm. uh, that made things uh, equally as difficult and or or added to the complexity. And so I would look off and see my peers off to the side and see them totally engaged and laughing and, you know, all sorts of things that, that having that sense of belonging. And, and it was like, what, what's happening for them? That's not happening for me. Hmm. And, and so what over time as that went on, because that, that went on for years and I was also picked on and the, you know, the, the notion of bullying as we call it now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, all of that added, to my overall experience. And, and so as time went on, it was like, well, what is it that they have that I didn't? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was really uh, the, the one word that I could lump things under was the experience of confidence. Yeah. So, so for me, a, a kind of early life question became, well, then how does somebody develop that? Cause I surely need it. And I mm. didn't. That's a really, um, I think I can really resonate with a lot of that experience too. And I'm sure our listeners can as well, that like felt sense of belonging is so primal and, um, we never know exactly what those groups of people are feeling and doing, but it is the sense of like distance between the two. What age do you think you were when you had that question come up for you, which is like confidence? How does one get confidence? Do you remember? Well, I think the word confidence probably came up later I, that would probably be either into late childhood or into adolescence hmm. but the the absolute quality of not fitting in was i i can i mean i can identify certain specific memories mm -hmm. that date back to um uh, something even to kindergarten wow yeah and and then um probably less in first grade, but, but definitely in second and third grade, I was mm -hmm. I very poignant memories that relate to that. So, yeah. um, so it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it dates back early in my life. Yeah. Um, who were some influential people in your life that, um, 
helped you in that process of finding confidence or maybe hindered your ability to find that confidence? Uh, you know, I would say I had uh, two uh, two great role models. My mother was a great role model for me. Mm-hmm. And likewise, her mother in particular was also a great role model for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were aspects of kind of who they were and how they functioned that that I really followed. Um, they were they it looked like they could do everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously couldn't. But um, but they were they were ambitious in their own ways and um, and and I would uh, and I you know I watched I watched my uh, my grandmother kind of uh, be very active and engaged and uh, and do all sorts of things well into mid eighties or late eighties actually and and so it was a it was a model for me of of kind of staying active and engaged in the world in ways that she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and I think there was a, there was an eighth grade teacher that took, that was very patient with me in terms of being listening to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually started to point me in a much better direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point forward, I, I think I started to, to lean into other things that were actually important to me. I got involved in the, uh, in experiential adventure movement. Mm-hmm. So the think ropes courses and outward bound and those kinds of things. And then it was, so it was using the outdoors as a medium for growth mm-hmm. and for personal growth and transformation. And um, I had initially wanted to be an outward bound instructor. Cool. And, and so that, but again, where my efforts kind of turned at some point then was not not using at the way I like to frame it now is it I went inward bound as opposed to outward bound yeah uh, from the standpoint of psychology so yeah um what's fascinating to me about just the human experiences you know we could be we're we're such a we're we're these little people in the world looking at everyone around us trying to find our way trying to find our our tribe if you will and it takes one patient teacher uh, a couple amazing amazing parent and amazing badass grandma to model something it's just it's like these moments in time they're not grandiose but they are so important and and what's a what's beautiful to me is that like the psyche will hold on to that and stay with that and like hold those and like you know like that that gives you the push to just keep finding what brought you some some comfort it sounds like nature was an experiential play was a big part of that for you yeah definitely absolutely true and i i agree with you It, it does it doesn't doesn't have to be big and explosive or grandiose. This it's the simplicity of the everyday moment. Yeah. Um, I just had a thought. I'm gonna run it by you. You know, the ACEs test where you can yes. adverse childhood experiences for those listening, you can look at like these big moments and then small baby T traumas, but still traumas that add up to uh, sort of let you know, like the, the level of trauma you've had in your life and how it might be a predictor of autoimmunity and health concerns. I just have a thought, is there anything out there that's adversarial to that? That's like early childhood joyful nudges where you can like go, go that's back a, and, and map. Like <laughs> That's a, that's a, what a wonderful question. Um, that would be worth probably creating. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that would be interesting. It's like the, you know, the movie Inside Out, the cartoon movie with the characters. Uh-huh. It's like, if we could map those, we have the 10 more or less I, like traumatic core memories. And like, can we map 10 <laughs> moments of nudges that like you belong, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. 
that's an interesting experiment. Um, um, well, maybe you'll create that. I'll let you uh, go, uh, go with a, that. Uh, it's a thought. I will hold on to that. Yeah. Um, so bring us through, I guess, like bring us through the years. And, and I, one thing I'm curious about too, is you had these early influential moments, just like, what were some of the things that you were beginning to wrestle with? You know, you, the confidence thing became a word later on in life you found, but like, what were some of the, the things like constructs, beliefs, ways of being that the world gave you, showed you, told you you had to be that you began to question and even unlearn at a young age? Well, you know what, from the bullying experience is, um, mm -hmm. and, and it, they didn't stop in, in childhood and adolescence. I actually, um, and even some work experiences, I, I took a lot of heat mm -hmm. and what I, but what I learned early on and made a decision about early on is that I never, ever wanted to treat somebody the way I got, the way I was treated mm -hmm. because I knew what a cost it was to me. Yeah. And, and so very early in my life, kindness became a, a high value. Yeah. And, and hopefully I run most of my life through that lens, through mm -hmm. that value. And, and I do believe that we can emotionally regulate. One way we can emotionally regulate well is through, through the values that we hold. Mm. So if, if we hold higher values, what I call higher values, then we can, you know, kindness and warmth and compassion and empathy, mm -hmm. then, then we're likely to, to live one way in the world. And if we hold other values where we, it's okay for us to demean and do other things, then mm -hmm. it's going to look very, very different. So that was one kind of relearning, unlearning, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I was, you were talking about influences and, and I, uh, happened upon, the, I was invited into, I didn't happen upon it. I was invited into the work of uh, Dan Siegel mm -hmm. and <clears throat> who's, you know, did a tremendous amount uh, around the built kind of uh, what he called, has called uh, interpersonal neurobiology. Mm -hmm. And I studied with him for, I think it was at least 10 years mm -hmm. and was there with him in some of the earlier parts of what he was doing. And so I had uh, a lot of time with him, and uh, it was it was sm small groups generally, and and so that that had a huge influence in terms of the work that I've since kind of put out into the world. So and and if you read through the the ninety seconds book that I wrote, then you'll see him referenced many times. Mm -hmm. uh, so just a you know attribute want to correctly attribute where that learning came from. So it was a real key influence. And so, um, and the other thing that happened for me is as I was doing my work as a psychologist, what I started to notice in terms of the people that I was working with was um, how many found unpleasant feelings difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. And, and that, so that raised a question for me at that point. And it was, it was like, okay, what, you know, what is it really that's making this so hard? Mm -hmm. And as I was uh, working with Dan, that's when I, I felt like I, you know, I started to have my own little revelation around this and, and that, um, and then it was like, oh, okay, it's, it's there. We're, we're actually uncomfortable with how we know what we're feeling. Yeah. And that, that then opened up a whole world to me. And that, then that started to link up with the first question I had around confidence. Yeah. How does develop confidence. So it was a, it was a series of 
experiences over years, mm-hmm. um, literally childhood through adolescence, through especially early adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was able to kind of test stuff out repeatedly for, frankly, the past 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a phrase that's coming up in my head as I'm listening to you. It's this concept of like following the breadcrumbs, like, you know, and yeah. we set career professional life goals and we never know exactly where things will lead. And these early life experiences for you uh, planted some seeds of desire for belonging and desire for connection. And also just like the, the, the uncertainty of how to achieve those and in a really sometimes hostile, crazy world. I mean, kids, kids can be brutal. And so can people in corporate America. And I think it's part of humanity and part of consciousness that people can sometimes just be un not pleasant, right? Not, not kind. Um, and so I just, I guess I, I sort of want to have a nod to like the, the life of following the breadcrumbs for you, like how beautiful that is to just see things stack up and just like, the influence of Dan Siegel and, and his work and how that's led to where you are now. Um, I, well, you mentioned something about your, in your work, the book, I've, which I've, I love and I've read um, about unpleasant feelings. It's about this, this concept, right? And I'm going to have you explain it better than I can, 90 seconds to a life you love. But that if we can learn to sit with both the pleasant and unpleasant feelings, um, we can have a level of mastery of, of confidence. Um, how come you chose the words pleasant and unpleasant? Um, I know a lot of, I'm just curious about that because a lot of people say like good and bad, which I always have a hard time with because it's, they're just data, right? But tell me why, what what stood out to you with the words pleasant and unpleasant feelings? Well, I, I, part of it is understanding that um, the the kind of feelings that we would typically call negative or bad, what most right. people label as negative or bad, are they actually exist for us for protective purposes. Mm-hmm. So then what what looks like bad feelings are actually good feelings. Depends right. on how you look at it, right? Right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's like, oh, well, they're designed to protect us. Then it's like, okay. Then there's they have they bring goodness, you know, kind of with them. Mm-hmm. And so, it, so for me, it was like, I'm not, I don't want to use the kind of language that then supports putting them in any kind of negative light. Right. So what I ask people to do is to actually ditch the words negative and bad feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and then it was a matter of, well, the, the reality is, is that it's the experience that we have with them. So again, so if we step into the, the science of it, if you will, most of us come to know what we feel emotionally through bodily sensation. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, what dawned on me is that the bodily sensation is what becomes uncomfortable, <clears throat> excuse me, or unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, or unsettling or unsomething, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? But it's not that it's bad or negative. Yeah. And, and so if we can learn to sit with the discomfort, so I could have called them uncomfortable feelings. I think the title yeah, of the yeah. book is difficult feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so it's it's really um it, it came about because I didn't want to land anywhere into the idea of bad or negative. Yeah. And what I was trying to get at was what the experience was in the body. Can you walk us through the 90-second um the research you found within how emotions have a 90-second lifespan and just how that works? Um, I've been working through that my own in my own life. And then of course with my my work is this uh is how to regulate emotions. And I think it's so fascinating just the science behind it. So can you walk us through just the findings you found about that? 
Yeah, I would say that there's three or four different things that I, I kind of put together. The first is to understand that we're one interconnected whole. You know, lots of times we like to shut down on, on what we're experiencing, but when we do that, we're actually shutting down often on our bodily experience. So the the first is to, to again, wrap our mind around we're one interconnected whole. The brain is always feeding information to the body and the body is always feeding information to the brain. And we want that. Uh, the second is what I started down is that the, the second big idea I would say is that to understand that most of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. Yep. So the example I, I very frequently give is, is the idea of being embarrassed. Hmm. And, and so if, if you looked at me and saw my face, I was embarrassed about something, you'd see my face or my chest or whatever neck turn red, probably just uh, that, that face flush. And I would be feeling the heat as the bottle in of all that mm -hmm. blood rushing to my face or whatever. It's actually not the blood rushing to my face. It's the biochemicals in the blood that are actually rushing mm -hmm. um, that, that I would experience the heat that would be the bottle in, in that area of my face and chest. Um, that would go, oh, I'm, I'm feeling embarrassed. Right. And, and our bodily reacts more quickly than our thoughts do. So it takes uh, a na nanoseconds is really what we're talking here, but it, but it takes a moment for us to be then aware of what we're experiencing. And then eventually we put, we attach a name to that. Related. So, so in this case, I would be feeling kind of the, the rush of, of uh, those biochemicals in the bloodstream into my face. I, I was like, oh, I'm embarrassed. And, and then deal with whatever the discomfort of that is. Mm -hmm. and, and the third kind of main understanding is that, uh, and it was, not, it was not my finding, it was a woman named Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who had, was a Harvard-trained neuroscientist who uh, experienced a stroke that took her eight years to um, rehab from. And what she noticed during that time period is that uh, a, a given feeling, if you will, so now we're talking about bodily sensation, would this would last roughly 90 seconds. So it, the idea she talks about is that when a feeling gets triggered, that, that there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream. And that that and then there is a flush of those same, same biochemicals out of the bloodstream in roughly an upper limit of 90 seconds. Mm. So I was trying to find, uh, again, I was trying to understand what it was that made it so difficult for people to experience unpleasant feelings. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find a way to help my clients lean into them. Mm. So the the first thing was to help them understand that it, all we're talking about is is hanging out with bodily sensations. Mm -hmm. The second thing was then helping them understand that they were short-lived. Mm -hmm. And, and what, when I told this to one of my clients, she goes, oh, that's less than half a song. Yeah. Which yeah. I loved. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's really the idea. It's, it's then the fourth piece then is in order to stay present and to experience the whole range of what we feel now, now I'm getting to pleasant and unpleasant mm -hmm. is to be able to be willing to be open to receptive to mm -hmm. um, just staying present to the experience in the body of one or more 
short-lived bodily sensation waves. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the first part. That's the leading into and the method, if you will, for experiencing unpleasant, uh, and particularly unpleasant feelings. Right. <laughs> because that's what's harder for people. But the, the second part is understanding that we can make use of those feelings. So it's not just the, the it's not just that we feel it and it's like, okay, done. It's actually that there's something for us to do with them. Right. And that the, the idea in my mind is that we can make use of feelings then, what we're experiencing, to um, help us to, when we combine them. Or, so think of think our thoughts as one source of data or a resource, and think of our feelings as another resource. Mm -hmm. Like both of those are resource pools then we can combine our feelings with our capacity to think and to reason, mm -hmm. to make decisions, to express ourselves, or to take some kind of an action. Yeah. That um, speaks a little bit to what you're talking about before about values, like to make values yes. decisions is... so. I love this breakdown and um, I will put like Dr. Taylor's book and um, Jill Bolte Taylor's book and her TED talk in the notes today as well. Um, I think your three-step approach is really, really important that I think also too, like we have to kind of unlearn as a society that we're not like the brain and body aren't separate. It sounds really simple, but I think, I, I don't know the, the year exactly, but that, that's more or less a recent finding in the last 60 years, right? Medically that like the brain and the body. Yeah, well, in terms of way. the, I mean, the, the, I think it was, um, one of the Bush presidents that called, I think it was the nineties was supposed to be the decade of the brain. Yeah. And, and so a lot of what started to come out around the experience, the, how, what people began to understand mm -hmm. uh, about how the brain functioned and how the mind worked, um, it started to happen in the mid, to, especially it was burgeoning at that point. Yeah. Uh, the, in the mid to late nineties into the, especially into the early two thousands. And, and there's more and more understanding since, but that's sure. when kind of the explosion yeah. of information about the brain started to come out. Um, and just this brain body connection, and then understanding that we're first feeling sensations, then we're labeling them with words as an emotion. And that comes with its own narrative and hopefully a line of questioning to your work, right? Like, okay, you feel anger, you feel sadness, like ask some questions based off you know, like have a dialogue with the, with the emotions. Do you advocate for people to actually have a, a conversation with their emotion? Like, if you will, is that something you think about or talk about? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I probably, I, I don't, maybe not quite as directly as that. I think yeah. certainly I would support that. Yeah. Um, what I will often do is to say, uh, don't stop there. It's like, don't just have the feeling and then do like, do nothing. Yeah. Be yeah. my thing is be curious. Yeah. And in fact, I like to encourage people to be curious about their own minds. Hmm. And the so it would be get curious and go, all right, you know, what what is the what is the first, what is this reaction I'm having? So that you can identify more specifically the feeling. And I would get away from big words like uh, or big vague words like uh, anxiety, mm -hmm. freaked out, yeah, or fear. And I would, I would actually prefer that people be much more specific about the feeling state that they're experiencing. 
Um, because I think that my experience with that is that the more specific you are, the more you actually calm your nervous system down. Yeah. That's what I've watched repeatedly. The more specific, right. the more you calm. Yeah. And, and so for me, it's, it's like, okay, what, what, gee, what, what's my reaction and what am I reacting to? Right. Right. And then if you have the time and you want to put the effort into it to actually grow you, mm -hmm. then it's, um, huh. I, I wonder if there's a pattern to this, mm -hmm. you know, or, or I wonder if, you know, this seems like a really intense reaction to something. I wonder if there's anything in the past. Right. That's connected to what I'm going through right now. Yeah. So you can you can get really curious about what you're experiencing, and actually, by the questions you then ask, ask yourself to consider. Yeah. Then then you actually are creating moments of transformation or growth for yourself. Big time. Um, I have a question. I'm sure it's come up for you in your practice, but you know, so I've I've known about the 90 second rule ever since I sort of came across Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor's work, but, and you know this intellectually, right? You're like, okay, I get it. Like emotions can last 90 seconds and you go out into the world and I live in New York city and something happens and all of a sudden like, fear rises or sensations rise that are associated with fear. And then before you know it, you're, I'll use words like hijacked. Your, your brain just feels like really scared or something happens on the street. And so it's in this moment of like this question of like, we can know these concepts, we can practice them. And then because we're human, we're going to get probably hijacked. Our amygdala, our limbic brain will take over. What do you recommend people do when they feel like five or six minutes have gone by and they're just in a whirlwind of emotions? They haven't yet had the capacity or awareness to pause and to be, you know, to have a level of inquiry. Um, Essentially, what do we do when we get hijacked? <laughs> when the uh, my my big my yeah. biggest thing is to um, and this would occur when you're when you're just reacting in a more mild way. It also I would emphasize this to your question about when you're feeling hijacked. Yeah. The first thing to do is to engage in deep breathing. Yeah. And and I'm not talking about one breath, like one slow deep breath down your belly and back up. It's mm -hmm. no, it's multiple. Yeah. I think eight to fifteen eight to 10, eight to 15 rounds of just slow, deep breathing, because you can't simultaneously be in two physiological states. Yeah. So if you're then into deep breathing, that's going to put your body in, it's going to slow your nervous system down. Mm -hmm. So it's going to enable you to then um, re-engage actually your thinking brain. So part of what happens when people get into what they call feeling flooded or feeling hijacked by what, what they're experiencing in terms of the feelings is that literally the, the part of the thinking brain is shutting down. Yeah. And, and so when you allow yourself to pause and to just totally engage in deep breathing and not kind of not worry about anything else, just dial it into your breathing, then that starts to give your space, it starts to give your brain space to re-engage itself so the thinking brain could kind of come back online mm -hmm. and and so that that would be the absolute first the the second part i would say to that is don't open your mouth <laughs> good idea <laughs> so because commonly those kind yeah. of hijacked experiences are going to happen when you're angry yeah and i never like people to speak when they're in the kind of the upward curve if you will mm -hmm. of, of the intensity of what they're reacting to it's right. like, no, you just focus on your breathing, keep your mouth shut and don't do anything else. Don't yeah. say a word. 
Yeah. And, and it, once you're calming down or you're in that calmer state, that's when you can speak. Because what you're likely to say at those two different points are, they're likely to be very different. That's true. Very different. Um, so it's like get regulated, right? Like find a way yeah. with your breath, your movement to regulate, to come back to presence. Um, it reminds me of a concept uh, that's in the book, 50 <clears throat> Commitments to Conscious Leadership. And I think, um, uh, Katie and Gay Hendricks talk about, but this idea of um, <clears throat> matching your emotion with your expression. So a lot of times, like I know growing up, right? Like I was the youngest of seven kids and mom and dad were great leaders and role models, but they were tired and stressed and there was so much to do. I mean, like my mom jokes that there was a whole decade where she didn't really know who was the president because she was changing diapers for like five kids. Like she was inundated. And so this idea of we see our parents struggle, we see our siblings go through things. We realize we don't want to add to that because it's, it's crazy what we're seeing. So we got to like be good and be stoic. And we, we develop, I guess, personas or adaptive ways of surviving in the world. And I I've noticed myself over the years, like everyone always says, you look so calm. And I'm like, well, that's practiced <laughs> like, since I was a little kid. I had good practice at being quiet and good. It's bringing me to this point of stoicism in our culture and how we don't express. One thing I'm playing around with is when I feel an emotion or something and something needs to be felt. Can I match my expression with it, like with a sound or a movement? So maybe not words, maybe I won't be angry, but does that sort of track with your, your research and like how it might help us move through the emotion versus feel like we are consumed by it? Uh, well, I have a, a really, um, I mean, uh, I think a lot of my work is actually formed yeah. around this idea of congruence. Yeah. So I, I, my goal is for people to live in a world where their thoughts, feelings, words, and actions all match. Yeah. <clears throat> so absolutely yes to um, matching something. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually think it's crucial when we, when we speak and behave in ways that are not matching with what we're thinking and feeling. I think it creates a shutdown, cut off, or disconnected experience within ourselves that leads to inauthenticity mm -hmm. and ultimately more anxiety, what people yeah. would call anxiety. Yeah. The more we can match our thoughts, feelings, words, and actions, yeah. and have that level of congruence, that matching, then the more we are centered, the more grounded, the calmer, the more confident, et cetera. So yeah. uh, an absolute yes to your question. Yeah. And it speaks a lot to the authenticity piece. Um, you know, you mentioned in your book, which it feels hard for us to like, to practice and to do our whole lives. Like, let's say you, like I've developed a, when I was young, I developed a reputation for being calm and good. And so, but now if I have an expression or if I feel like I want to speak up at a family event, they're like, well, who are you? And I'm like, well, this is genuinely what I'm feeling. And I, I'm just noticing the difference of once you come into, like you're saying, congruence and authenticity of your inner state, like a lot of people don't always like that. <laughs> they have feelings about that, which is part of the journey of, right. Um, right. Finding, finding your voice. But I'm, my experience has been, people have been like, you've changed. And I'm like, that's right. <laughs> I'm not stoic anymore. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's part of what I've seen in my experience practicing. Well, it's, and it, well, yeah, you can say I've changed or I'm just kind of 
living more fully my, as myself. Yeah. Right. This is uh, what kind of what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I would absolutely advocate for it, but the caveat that I would wrap around this, and this is, this also gets at the whole speaking thing is that I, I have one major caveat around speaking and the, and that is that it needs to be kind and well-intentioned. Mm. So, so just because someone in quotes has found their voice, right. Feels like they can now say things or speak up and, and, places and situations and events and with people that they didn't once feel like they could do right uh, in my mind that never ever gives one license to to provide feedback without permission mm -hmm. nor to be malicious or ill-intentioned in any manner that's right and the only place for that is in situations where there's legitimate danger or self-defense or threat mm -hmm. that exists mm -hmm. yeah um well there's the word that came to mind there is sort of like this through line of like integrity through the emotional awareness and emotional literacy process for you in your work your three-step process congruence and then kind and well-intentioned word is like integrity to the self to become aware of your inner world to accurately describe it to the best of your ability uh to find ways to express it and make that a practice. I think that that the first word that came to my mind was integrity there of interesting. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about, you mentioned the nervous system before this idea of pleasant and unpleasant feelings we alluded to, we talked about before, but um, can you tell us why we, we, I think we all know like some of the unpleasant feelings like um, disappointment and shame um, uh, embarrassment that can come up for us. Right. Um, talk can you talk a little bit about why pleasant feelings are sometimes just as hard for people to tolerate um and if you've seen if you have anything to share there <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i think the um I, I would say generally pleasant feelings are well received mm -hmm. <clears throat> there are times that people find it harder I would say more specifically uh, the places where I've found people struggle with taking, allowing themselves to experience pleasant feelings has more to do with when they're complimented mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. or when they've achieved something and they're, um, they're not uh, allowing themselves to, to fully experience the goodness, if you will, mm -hmm. with having achieved whatever they achieved. Mm -hmm. um, that makes that makes sense quite a bit. I was thinking a little bit about Brene Brown's work. She she mentioned that joy in her research was one of the most vulnerable emotions, um, because when you have something beautiful or good to share that you've found, whether it be a creative project or a love, that it's open then for criticism or it's open for people to give possibly negative feedback with. So I don't know if that tracks with your experience, but just this idea that joy and good feelings can be very vulnerable for people. Um, I do think that's true. Um, I don't, I don't attach it to the criticism piece per se. Right. right. Uh, but, but I mean, the one person that's coming to mind for me is uh, uh, somebody who's a writer and I was writing for uh, obviously uh, major motion picture kind of things. And, and she'd experienced a, 
handful of successes and felt like when she would have the experience of pride, it felt like her chest would explode mm-hmm. and, or that sense of achievement. And so it became very uncomfortable to actually allow herself to take the full breaths, if you will, of it's like, I, mm-hmm. oh, I, I did this and it would, it yeah. would be painful. And so yeah. she would back away from the experience of the, the good or joyful moment or prideful moment, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but because again, same thing, the bodily sensation was too uncomfortable. Yeah. There's something about, and I don't know if it's, I don't think it's Western culture. Cause I know it's actually quite common in like uh, in, in Japan for people to have a hard time with positive, like self congratulatory feedback and very much a culture of like fitting in for the betterment of the, the tribe. it feels like that must be something there, but it does feel like a lot of the pleasant feelings that are directed towards the self from somebody else in particular, um, or yeah, like celebratory feelings are just really challenging for people to like embrace and like actually like amplify and sit with. And and I even find it too, like people give me a compliment. I'm just like, yeah, but you know, or thanks, but, and I learned to practice just sitting with a compliment, but, um, yeah, there's something about the self there that is harder to sit with. I feel. Well, if we look at the collective cultures that like Japan, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the self is um, the self. Uh, there's a word I want to use for it. Not suppressed. It's subdued. Mm-hmm. There's uh, relative to the collective nature. So that the, the collective experience is greater than the self. Yeah. And so that, that that's given higher value. Um, that make that makes sense, particularly in, in collective cultures. I, I do think that there's something very important about us being able to receive compliments because mm-hmm. I do I think of it as a contributor to confidence. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I, again, my bias is people don't really understand them. And, understand and what understand compliments. Yeah. Huh. And you know, and it took me a while. I did, I would say I fell into that group for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And and we also are socialized, by and large, probably across cultures, to not take compliments in. Mm-hmm. So the um, the and for me, the understanding around compliments is that a compliment is a reflection of you back to you, mm. and it comes out of an experience with you or an experience of you. Mm-hmm. So it you could be, a, you know, a, somebody that's doing something on stage, music, dance, you know, theater, whatever it is. And, and if you're really touched by that experience and you come up to the person, oh my God, you were so great, or I was so, whatever it was that you were responding back, your voice is so beautiful. And the person goes, oh, it was nothing. What's happening there is that if I'm giving the compliment, I'm trying to share with you your, your, my experience of you. Mm-hmm. So it's a front reflection of you back to you. Yeah. Right? So uh, if it gets dismissed, now you're dismissing not only your own reality you're dismissing mine yeah yeah and you don't get to take in the benefit 
of what actually having that reflection back to you means. Mm-hmm. You know, what I love to say here is that um, it's it's like I I will often wonder. So for for the, you know the the people that is this is relevant for if you're listening to this, is I would have you stop and think about all the compliments you've dismissed. Mm. And, and it, I mean, go back a month, go back six months, go back six years, go back 60 years. It, it doesn't matter because I think compliments are timeless. Mm. And so if you stop and think about the kind of compliments, either not either the kind of compliments or the compliments you've dismissed, and you stop and let yourself start to think about what those compliments were or are the question i would ask you is what happens for you as you allow yourself to actually take in those compliments and how might you have been different Mm -hmm. if you allowed yourself to take them in when you actually first heard them Mm -hmm. how would that have influenced you in your life if early on you really allowed yourself to absorb the compliments mm. that were shared with you. Mm-hmm. I love that you said compliments are timeless and the actual activity of going back 30 days or however many years and figuring out what, what are the compliments that you've been given? What are the ones that you may not accept so freely? What are the ones that you might, um, you might take in? I think that's an interesting, like audit experience. And my hunch is probably if I had accepted half the compliments I've been given, I would have been, I don't like the word, what's the word, stronger or better, but maybe just more fuller version of myself, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what, what I think the effect is, is that they help us update and up-level our self-image. Hmm. That's pretty invaluable. Right. Yeah. So, so one of the ways I, I like to think about this is think about the positions that you've held and, and how you went from here to here, to here, to here, to here, mm-hmm. like rising mm-hmm. level by level by level. Each step of the way was its own reflection back to you that you'd achieved something in particular. Right. <coughs> it's its own compliment. Right. And then there's a stepping more fully into yourself because, oh, I got this. Mm. I can now perform at this level. Mm -hmm. It brings up the question of the upper limit. Are you familiar with that, with Gay Hendricks' work? He, um, just this idea that the closer we get to like, I guess, actual, and maybe fill it in if if I'm missing something because I don't remember exactly, but this idea of like fulfilling our capacity and our potential, like the closer we get to actualizing our ability or our gifts, the more people might sabotage or run away or have something that impacts that um, coming into fullness. Right. Some people like to talk about it as an upper limit to happiness. Yeah. Right. That it's, yeah. it's like, yeah, as we get closer to that, that we, that we do something to actually not allow ourselves to experience that very thing. Exactly. Right. Um. One thing that one of my mentors and friends, um, Kimberly Johnson, she wrote the book, The Call of the Wild in the fourth trimester. And I met her here in Brooklyn in a sauna a couple of years ago. We just got to talking and all of a sudden we were friends and 
turns out she's written some good books on some of these uh, concepts around the nervous system. And one thing that I've taken from her work, which has been really powerful, I think with helping me and all the people in my life who I connect with and work with is like sitting with pleasant and unpleasant feelings is she kind of posits that the more we can sit with pleasant feelings and like deepen that safety, the more we're, we will be more resourced to be able to sit with an unpleasant feeling. And, and it's just this, and it's interesting, like I'm viewing it as like a swing almost, right? Like that the more we can do both, the better able we are and the more regulated we are to be able to endure life. And that, that speaks to, I think the confidence of your work is, so sometimes I try to actually ask myself, like if I can enjoy a day in the sun, like I'm on my back patio and I feel the sun on my face, like, okay, it feels good. But then I'm, I kind of ask myself, like, can I make it feel even better? Can I really sit into the feeling of the sun on my face and try to get really detailed with it? That's something I do personally. And I, I talk to my clients about, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or additions to that. Well, the, I would say the flip is true. The better, the greater we are, the the greater our capacity is for healing unpleasant feelings, the more enriched our experience mm-hmm. of pleasant feelings. Right. Yes. Because we muffle one, we muffle the other. That's right. So, so that, I mean, that's one thing I would kind of add to what you were describing yeah. about Jim's work, but the, um, yeah, you, again, the, the beauty of what you're doing there is that your the once you generate a question for your own mind to consider mm. you can deepen whatever aspect of of the experience you'd like to deepen yeah <clears throat> yeah like really <clears throat> into it really experience and be with it um Speaking of being and experiencing things, um, can we talk about emotions, namely grief and anger? Because sure, they're top of mind for me. Okay, <laughs> and I, I know that they are for all humans at some point, whether they're aware of it or not. But um, just this, uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I want to share a reflection about grief and sadness and see if this, I don't want to say makes sense, but see, see what you can offer to it. Um, so my dad recently passed in November of uh, like a, form of visual dementia, visual variant of dementia was very sort of um, hard disease to manage over the last 10, 11 years. And there was years of anticipatory grief. And then there were years of, okay, this is happening, months of this is happening, you know? And so when he passed, um, grief is crazy, right? Like you, you're at a stoplight, you're playing a song and all of a sudden you're bursting into tears because you remember somebody and they come back to you in that moment. But I've had these experiences with grief and sadness where I almost visualize it like I'm going through like a tunnel and it's really dark. And then all of a sudden I really feel the sadness of this beautiful person or this person in my life who I miss. And like, this doesn't always happen, but sometimes it just feels like this bright light of like warmth comes at the end of sadness and and grief. And for years I avoided it because it was like so scary and so big and like, God, I couldn't imagine losing a parent and being in that stage of my life without a parent, but I've come to really see it as a beautiful gift when I can get still with sadness and get still with the grief. Um, sometimes it feels overwhelming and I don't want anything to do with it, (laughs) but sometimes I'm able to find this like warm orange hue of, of, of not joy, but like peace, if you will. I, I don't know if that is something you've experienced or you see in psychology or in your work, but, um, that's, what's coming up for me around grief. Well, I, I, I think when we allow ourselves to stay present to 
again, kind of the t- to the truth of our experience, to the sadness in this case, mm. uh, when we allow ourselves to, and we allow it to be fully expressed. Um, I think it, I, I don't know quite how to put the words around this. I, it, I think there's, uh, it's like, I think of it kind of as a completion of a process mm. that, um, that, and, and at potential. So it moves us to, to what you're describing. It moves us to a place of calm when we're able to, to let ourselves just move in it and with it mm. and through it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's usually a calming mm-hmm. that happens. Uh, and oftentimes when we allow ourselves to move through something, sometimes we were able to gain insights. So my experience oftentimes is that an insight will follow the full expression of something, mm. including sadness and grief. Mm-hmm. You know? And maybe it's just the reflection of, oh my God, you know, I just have a, I have a even deeper taste of how much I love this person mm-hmm. or uh, an even deeper experience of, of what they meant to me. And, and so um, it, when you, when you shut it down, um, when you shut it down, just like it, shutting any other kind of uh, kind of reactions and experiences down, we cut off from ourselves. I, I if I may, I share a, a kind of an experience I had with a particular client. Um, he uh, he had lost his nephew. At I think the nephew was twenty, and he's also very attuned to what's happening in the world, at least in the U S mm-hmm. uh, and with uh, particularly all the gun violence and gun violence aimed at children. Um, and he has a history of being, uh, uh, he's a adult child of a family of Holocaust survivors. Wow. So we have this through line of death, uh, experience death. And then, anticipated death Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or fear about that and he has two children and we were talking and i i actually don't even remember the specifics of what it was but all of a sudden he was in tears Mm. and and what he said to me was that he just realized that he had never grieved his nephew Mm. And he was attaching that grief to the anticipated grief of his, uh, the, the, the potential of his own children being hurt. Yeah. And it was so raw for him that, you know, he's trying to keep it out of his awareness, but he was more anxious because of that. Yeah. But as soon as he could allow himself to be in touch with the grief that he had not experienced, again, he calmed down. Yeah. So we move when we allow ourselves to actually experience the feelings, we move ourselves through a process and it often does lead to a, a calmer, more relaxed state. It's, it's sort of beautiful and fascinating, but I love your sentence insights follow expression. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to capture it. Um, and to remember to stay with it. If when, when, right. yeah. and when. I, I won't say, I won't say every time. Right. But often, right. Yeah, often. Um, So, so just, just more about grief. I mean, I think that, you know, um, like the last three or four years, right, we've lost a lot of 
social, relational friendship circles, community circles, our routines, there's been just this like sort of background grief that was like maybe unnamed for some time. And then it became quite for me to the prominent of like, oh, wow, like all worlds have changed now. Um, What are some of the ways that you think that people can most healthily kind of process and work through grief, the loss of a loved one, um, suggestions or tools that you think are most helpful, uh, particularly with grief? You know, I would say really to allow oneself to reflect on the um, the impact and influence mm-hmm. that a, a given person had on the person that's passed. To really, to really allow oneself to sit with um, the memories, because mm-hmm. you and and. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it might be a whole array of memories, some of them not so pleasant, but I would say in this case, dial it in, especially to the pleasant ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a memory is only as strong as the last time it was remembered. Mm. So it's really important to stack positive memories. Yeah. So that you keep them strong. Yeah. So what I would do is I would say, I would suggest, you know, um, sitting and reflecting on the variety of memories that you've had, um, especially um, generate, you know, or intentionally recall positive ones, Mm -hmm. get in the habit of repeatedly recalling them, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, and, uh, and, because again, it's that's just going to strengthen, yeah, that memory for the for the individual, and if particularly if it brings joy and it brings life and it brings light to that relationship, then great. Um, the I would if there's if there was never a chance to say goodbye, um, oftentimes the recommendation is to write a letter, mm-hmm. um, or if writing's not your thing, I would say find some way to give expression to it. So if it's dance, if it's sculpture, if it's yeah you know, music, if it's what, whatever it is that you find some way to, to honor uh, the individual, um, you know, and if, and, and if it's a complicated loss where there was a lot of bad mixed in with good, then I would say this is where a, a letter is actually very, very appropriate because it helps you sort your own experience sure. for, um, for the stuff that, that wasn't helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time that you can acknowledge things that may be helpful to you or, or were helpful to you. Um, yeah. And and I would also say, um, don't act as if the relationship is over. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say if the person was important to you and you still want to engage, then you talk to the individual that's passed. You continue to share memories like you, you know, if if you were going to pick up a a phone and give a call and say, Hey, let me just update you with what's going on. Mm. I would say you can stay in conversation. Yeah. And you can, depending on your belief system, you can invite their presence Mm -hmm. that you you can invite them to um, show you ways that they're still present in your life. Yeah. I really appreciate the the starting with 
like assessing their impact and influence. Um, like, and I imagine the more specific you get about that in that practice, the more helpful it is to process the relationship. Um, and stacking positive memories and expressing them. Yeah, I think that's that's timeless. Um, I'd love to ask a few questions just before we close. Um, you've spoken uh, on a few different podcasts and we talked about it earlier about the, you know, your your sort of Rosenberg reset process to emotional confidence um, begs all of us to uh, develop self-awareness, to inquire, to understand sensations are um, the thing that we feel the most resistance to and that there's some emotion behind them um, and that we can make use of the feelings to take the data from the feelings and understand what they're, where they're guiding us, how they're directing us. You get into this process of like, we, we think in the workplace, we think in relationships, like we want to, we want to feel confident and strong um, and then we'll speak up. And what you're saying in your work is that we develop this confidence by practicing, by speaking up. We, we may feel nervous and shaky in the feedback conversation at work, but we only can develop that through the act of speaking up. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about the value of speaking up and just what you're finding in, in your work with um, using our voice in obviously an intentional and kind way. <clears throat> well, to, to me, it's uh, what I have often said, and you may have heard me say it on some other podcasts as well, is that um, the body of the, the body of my work currently is centered around our capacity to deal with these difficult feelings, these unpleasant feelings. And that's kind of, to me, the foundational element of confidence. Yeah. And the, in fact, the way I define confidence is that it's the, it's, um, the deep sense that we can handle the emotional outcome of whatever we face or whatever we pursue. And when I'm talking about the emotional outcome, I'm talking about particularly unpleasant feelings. Yeah. So for me, that's the foundation of confidence. But what, um, but where I've moved to since the work came out is that as important as that foundational element is, of being able to experience and move through unpleasant feelings. I think the, the even bigger transformer of our lives is our capacity to speak and communicate well. Mm -hmm. And and what I realized is that, and again, I, I can be, um, I don't like to use the word accused of, but I can be accused of being uh, in my more youthful days as a psychologist is I was telling people, you need to speak up. You need to speak up. Got to assert yourself. And But in my mind, it was to get what they wanted or to get what they needed. Mm -hmm. It might be to stop something. It might be to start something. It might be to have less of something or more of something or whatever it was, to request something. And But as I've moved forward and across time, what I realized is that getting what we want or getting what we what we believe we need is actually the benefit to speaking up mm. whereas i thought it was the goal uh, mm -hmm. so for me that that was that was that, that's the goal of it that's that it's to get what you want or get what you need no the actually getting that is actually the benefit mm-hmm the goal in my mind now, the goal of speaking up is to grow you. Mm -hmm. 
And I have found that when someone has the experience of themselves, uh, that they have the capacity to speak with ease, mm-hmm. with intention, where, when, how, who, again, one caveat, kind and well-intentioned, mm-hmm. that that's when that's when somebody feels the most congruent and the most confident. Mm-hmm. Um. I keep thinking of like conversational push-ups, like flexing the muscle of learning the art of it, you know? Have to, have yeah. to. Because in that process, we also have to negotiate the unpleasant feelings. Yeah. The conversation it gets messier, it doesn't turn out well, or we have to, you know, stay in it for a half hour or 45 minutes or three hours. Mm-hmm. Then it's our also our capacity to be able to stay present to those unpleasant feelings that's woven in. Mm-hmm with the experience of speaking. I find it also too, just gives me like, <clears throat> like, okay, I've done this before. I've maybe it hasn't gone as well, or the outcome was not as intention, but I did show up. And I think that that is a big thing for me in terms of confidence and almost any realm is just like, did I actually show up? Like, I don't know how it went, but did I show up and try to, you know, speak my truth or whatever it may be, or ask for my needs. So, um, I think that's an incredible, incredible segue into your next body of work and communication and speaking up and, and how valuable that is in this, in this world, especially also too thinking about the nervous system and this, the value of expression. I think one of my, I was saying to someone a few years ago, like when I started my coaching practice, like one of my values is responsiveness, like that I'm responsive to myself. And then also like I'm responding to the world. Um, maybe for the first 30 years, I wasn't responsive, like maybe the first 20 years I wasn't responsive, but now I'm like, okay, that's a value of mine. Um, so I'm excited to see your work and where that goes with that and, and how you can help us deconstruct the great conversation of conversation of communication. What do we, how do we do it all? You know, like, (laughs) well, and I, and I do think that oftentimes we have to have conversations about conversations. So many. Are there any people you follow or you love to to read when it comes to communication and speaking up that have influenced you or that are just worth recommending? Um, I, yeah, you know what? I'm just starting down that journey now. So I will probably go back to some older ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, like he said, she said, mm-hmm. Deborah Tannen, I think was the one that wrote that. She wrote that book. But mm-hmm. so I, for me now, it's it's about now going back and, and taking a look at, at what others have written about. Right, right. Um, I'd like to ask you two questions and we're going to do rapid fire to close. The first question is, what are you actively unlearning in your life right now? Uh, uh, bad habits. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, right. I'm always, I'm always unlearning, um, a bad sleep routine. Mm. So. Yeah. Sleep is like, uh, it's the best thing when we do it right, right? <laughs> Feel yeah. totally different yeah. the next day. Yes. Um, and when you think about the definition or the concept of unlearning, what are some words or uh, how would you define unlearning? Like, how do you think of it? How do I think of unlearning? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about learning as conscious awareness and uh, conscious awareness, uh, decisions, and better choices. Mm-hmm. I like it. Okay. We're going to do rapid fire to close. Um, just a couple of questions, whatever comes to mind, anything and all things are game. Um, vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Um, beaches or mountains? Beaches. What book are you currently reading? 
uh, what book am I currently reading? I'm prepping for school. So it's a group psychotherapy book. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Country you most like to visit that you haven't yet. Portugal. Um, favorite country you visited to date. Favorite. Com uh, oh, that's okay. Uh, that's an interesting question. I'd have to go back and think about that. I would say Switzerland. Cool. Um, this is a debate question, but it's highly controversial on the podcast. Um, is a hot dog a sandwich? Uh, that's an easy one for me to answer. I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um all right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you and to to learn from your experience, your research. And it's been incredible to see you follow your breadcrumbs and just see where life takes you with your research, your life experiences. And I'm excited to see uh, what you create next. So thanks for That's everything awesome. you do. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.